Karlak here. I'm running a little hot under the hood at the moment, so unless you're here to listen to more monsters, madness and magic, I suggest you fuck off. Alright folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, I chat with actor Samantha Bayart about Hellraiser, Fast Times at Acting School, Bringing Carlac to Life, Motion Capture, Radio Dramas, and more. As always, thank you for listening out there, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, if you're interested in video, I do post the video to YouTube. You can also find us on there at Monsters Madness and Magic. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) So, Samantha, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? I am making trouble reading books in my fort. <laughs> That's a in great the, answer. Nights when I should be asleep <laughs> with a little uh, torchlight on. That's what I'm doing. I'm a nightmare. Let's just start with books then. Did you have a writer or a genre that you lean towards? Uh, I love Roald Dahl. I sort mm. of cleaned out the library quite young as a kid. I remember my mom getting called in for review, you know, like a friendly teacher parent thing and saying I was too young for Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) I was seven. It was fine. (laughs) Just always had books in the house and I loved reading fiction, particularly at the time. And and just always loved stories. Just Mm. didn't know about like this other way of of expressing it in a more physical kind of way. Yeah, it was all Roald Dahl, really. I think that's what was sort of available being reprinted a lot when Mm. I was a kid. Yeah. So what kind of trouble are we talking about? Are we just, you know, innocent parent-teacher meetings or no felonies? No felonies. <laughs> certainly none that are, are on the record anymore. Yeah, no, it's all it was all all fine, all well and good. But yeah, just in the playground, it was all imagination kind of stories. They would they would span whole years of my childhood. <laughs> you know, like picking up from last time. Right, okay, and entirely improvised and, and that's how I spent a lot of my time. So whereabouts did you grow up? Did you grow up around London? Yeah, London, born and bred. Did you attend the stage a lot? I didn't get to go to a theatre till I was a young adult, really. I was studying, well, I was studying plays, so I had to as part of the, the courses. And then I got taken to the theatre and then it was like university level when I was doing English literature, when I did a Shakespeare module and went, oh, mm. oh, right, I get it now. And so mm. I was, you know, being in London, of course, you're getting to go to everything. So that was a real the privilege of that. But yeah, seeing things lifted off the page and feeling what you feel uh, as these characters are brought to life, it's a lot less dry than the sort of traditional Victorian English way of teaching Shakespeare, which is, it's good for you, even if you're not enjoying it. (laughs) So were either your parents involved in the arts at all, maybe actors or anything like that? Do you think that's where your roots came from? They were very accepting. They've never mm. like told me not to do this. It's sort of been as, as long as you're happy. My parents are both immigrants. They're, we are all children of the empire, the British empire, just in case we've got any Star Wars fans watching. <laughs> my late father was from Ireland. And my mother is from Jamaica. 
Uh, she came over well, partly because she had a, an uncle, my great uncle, who fought in the Second World War and had settled and married and had kids. And they were going back and forth between England and Jamaica. So she always had that link to the UK. And when she came, she was going to be a singer. And there wasn't a case of like immigration or anything because uh, legally at the time, like she could sort of go back and forth as she wanted. She ended up auditioning at Guildhall, weirdly enough, which is where I went to, to learn acting. So. Mm. just small world and uh yeah my dad was on the jolly i think he was <laughs> he was a clock by day and like he played for a rugby team called london irish with all the perks that came <laughs> with it as well so yeah singer and, and uh sports star that was my parents so thankfully they were never going to clamp down on me and tell me i needed to get into one of the professions they were very very good and patient about that and it, i was a shy kid and it took me a very long time to find acting in fact i wasn't a kid when i found acting really seeing the classes but not really understanding it right uh, but singing and dancing and doing performing arts and it just took yeah it just took that time and they were always to this day my mom's super su supportive about it so that's yeah, great pretty ideal in that aspect yeah so did you ever dip your toe into the music side of things yourself oh yeah and then sort of took my toe back out again <laughs> i had a cousin bless him we're not in touch anymore so it's all right but i had a cousin who wanted to say 90 percent of my earnings and my image and my musical direction and i thought no you're all right i'll just not do that then <laughs> um it was it was pretty rough it was i imagine still pretty male dominated and uh some of the men can't really understand why you're in the room if you're not going to sleep with them they just can't quite work out there are other things you might be doing like playing instruments and singing and that so i found that <laughs> quite hostile really yeah um, yeah, and, and um, acting in its own way, you know, well documented as being hostile in its own way, but different and in a way that I can handle. So, were you singing or playing an instrument, or do you do both? I was singing, playing guitar. Oh, Rhythm, wow. Guitar, awesome. It wasn't great. A couple of bands here and there, yeah. So, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, Steve Vai fan. What, what kind of music did you grow up on? Wow. So, really eclectic. <laughs> uh, really eclectic. So, one of the first things I remember hearing is like, yeah, my parents' 1960s music collections. <laughs> Beatles, Kinks, Stones. Their favourite song was White a Shade of Pale by Prokhor Horam, which will make my mother cry any time. Both of them would cry <laughs> like big babies. Sure, there were a lot of drugs in the 60s. I get it, I get it. But, you know, on the mother's side, you've got the, the reggae. And then on the UK side, you've got Scar, which is the UK and, and Jamaica getting together and, and that. And then there's, like, you know, pop music of the 80s and the 90s kind of stops for me in the 90s, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, good times, really. Um, up to now, you know, I was listening to things like Radiohead, Depeche Mode, mm, uh, yeah. Nine Inch Nails, that sort of, it's quite, it's pretty broad. It's, it's swings sort of new wave most of the time. If it's got a dirty bass line <laughs> or a funky, funky drum beat, I'm in. I'm not that fast, really. I'm with you. Do you still play guitar? No, I, I live with a professional guitarist and composer oh. and there is no point. Oh yeah. <laughs> Discouraging. <so> <laughs> it's, it's intimidating. <laughs> And I think, okay, well, one of us is good at that. Okay. So when you think back to uh, formative films and TV shows you grew up on, what comes to mind? It's funny. I saw wore this T-shirt just for you, to be honest, knowing your your um, eclectic taste. <laughs> it's a Billy piece and a Brazilian artist. And so you've got, right, you've got the sort of Stephen King style book cover. Mm -hmm. Right? You've got the patch mode. Yeah. You've got, I don't know if you see Pinhead. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't, right? I didn't so even notice got, that. Yeah, loads of stuff going on. I just can't get enough on it. And I saw Hellraiser when I was eight, and I'm fine. Exactly. I'm fine, I keep telling the <laughs> doctors. Um, yeah, I know I had a mate at, at, at primary school, and we had access to what they called video nasties back then. <laughs> And that's how we educate it. I think there's a film <laughs> somewhere because we're not the sort of 
likely demographic to be doing that. So I watched a lot of horror and, and, and things I shouldn't have been watching. But I really appreciated the special effects and the makeup I did notice. And, and since then, I've not really been into horror. I sort of was done by the time I was 10, I think. I saw um, Fire Walk with me, very young. That left, like, lifelong David Lynch. I think that was the first David Lynch film I saw. Seen any more? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, first and pretty last. Much, pretty much everything else now, actually. Um, awesome. Apart from Inland Empire, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, massive fan, and um, I love it when a director trolls me and refuses to give me answers. He's very good at that. <laughs> very good at that. Yeah, Blade Runner was another influence on me, as in just I, I think it's it's a movie about what it means to be human, so it's it's always relevant. It's um, and I love my sci-fi and fantasy, and that's sort of what I've ended up working in primarily. Years were helpful because I formed my tastes, you know, which is uh, the dark stuff set in space. <laughs> yeah. a lot of. The <laughs> Did you enjoy any of the other Hellraiser movies, or did you just like the first one? They washed over me. Oh god, they went. Did they go to New York for a bit and pretend that the English bit never happened? Um, yeah. So then they came back, and then Claire Higgins came back. I think three is where I left it. Okay. I thought you were right. We're going into origin story, and I don't care. You're just ruining it for me. You start like at a good Terminator place. Three, one, like once you actually see what that battle looks like in the future it's not half as scary as it was in your head so you know in that first movie uh pinhead and the cenobites really aren't featured that much they just kind of come in near the end yeah it's like jaws isn't it you don't really see the shark oh yes jaws is another quote, thing. isn't it like you can't show it twice <laughs> you can't scare them twice with it yeah right and i was just talking with i don't know if you know who Allison court is but she played uh lunette big comfy couch she was jubilee and x-men anyway she uh she was talking about Jaws when I was interviewing her the other day, and I I don't think Jaws gets enough credit in the horror realm of things because sharks yeah. are real and it doesn't it doesn't register quite as a horror movie to some people. But who doesn't think outside about outside the sea? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't register absolutely. Who doesn't think about Jaws when they go to the beach or hear that theme in their head? It's just <laughs> terrifying. What scared you as a kid? That's something I like to ask everyone. Just because mm. you never know. Well, we've gone through what hasn't didn't scare me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most things. I'm trying to think what what did really. That's a good I'm answer. I'm scared now as an adult, mm. which I think is probably the the nice way around, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I'm glad I wasn't scared as a kid. I, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think if anything really, but no, I was uh, pretty well provided for and so could take a horror movie like a man. So if you can make it through Hellraiser at eight, you're pretty solid, rock solid. Yeah, that's fine. In terms, yeah, in terms of like fictional scary things, yeah, not not really. <laughs> So do you have a uh, maybe an aha slash eureka moment you can point to where you decided to give acting a try and thought that was for made this is for me? Yeah, just going back to that moment where I was I was seeing well, that term really when I was seeing a lot of Shakespeare to be quite honest because I understood every word. It was entirely relevant because they've got you've got another writer who's talking about what it means to be human and what humans do with these huge responsibilities. You know, it's it's, it's Greek tragedy as well, isn't it? Right, you've got the the family and the state. And these two little clash and uh, these petty grievances we have with each other can ruin whole countries. You know, look at King Lear. So they're so relevant and and good. And I found so much in them. Yeah, I just wanted to, I I would get a rush out of it. I'd get catharsis out of performing. As lovely as the childhood was, it was also Catholic. 
So uh, not much room for expressing emotions there. So um, I think that's kind of why I was finding this release in in that in a way that I wasn't getting through music so much. And it's collaborative storytelling, and, and I guess you have to be. And it's quite a clear hierarchy as well. With, you know, director at the top, everyone knows like where they fit in. It's not about you know um, knowing your place or anything, but like you know where the buck stops, and actually yeah. that takes a lot of responsibility off your shoulders. And certainly, you know, those sort of band squabbles that you have, where uh, you have a difference of uh, you know artistic of an artistic nature that's not going to happen in the play you know from day one what the tone will be and all that so you you don't have to worry about that so i found that quite quite comforting really i got into more and more what i realized quite quickly was i was completely in over my head and i didn't know what i was doing so uh, i decided to train and not being from a theatrical background or even a middle class background i didn't know about training at all and, and acted you know I'm trying to do in these interviews I'm trying to talk about training and the role it had in my life because what you get is so they'll go oh they went to drama school and then they came out and they got their role as Coriolanus at the national straight away <laughs> okay right but what about all those years where you weren't yeah ridiculously famous uh, and people <laughs> glossed over it even an interview I did recently I had to go back in and go do you mind actually like going into this a little bit more for context because it makes it look like I just woke up one morning and it took years and years and I was um yeah it was post-university I'd done the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show the fifth book which is mostly harmless most people don't get to it that's fine I play Random who's Arthur and, and Trillian's daughter and I feel like it's a proper like Indiana Jones slide under the door grab the hat Done, right? That's how that bit of career feels. And uh, people were telling me I was fine and I was good to go. And I didn't quite believe it. And it turns out I was right because it was radio. <laughs> I, was, I was really out of my depth. And uh, I found out about training and I, I trained for three years and I got out the other side. And then I went back into radio because people took one look at this mug and went, We can't tell where you're from. And that's the, that's the feedback. So. So what, take us back to your very first time on stage. Then. Did it go off smoothly? Did your pants fall down? How? What happened? So in a nativity play, I played the angel Gabriel. Uh, it's a cameo role. You come on, you do the thing, everyone claps, they love it. You go, the baby is born. Then you go home, it was fab, I loved it. Best role. <laughs> That's great. That was the first stage role, I think. Very easy. I would say it was underused, maybe. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, just drama school, like they, they just like to humiliate and embarrass us in different ways. Or you could say that it's a way of preparing you for literally anything. So you go from like mystery plays. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they were like religious, I think English or maybe European ways of theatre, of, of, of telling, I guess, illiterate populations, Bible stories. It starts to go into this representative phase, which they wouldn't have had. You would have had a direct address from the book or the priest, but it becomes this entity in front of you is representing something else and it is a, still a story but it's something else so it's the, the first sort of drama as we know it in in england i think i think that's why we do it and then of course you've got greek tragedy you've got res restoration drama which i only would recommend to to do just to know don't do it it's minging it's it's like if, if memes were theatrical pieces so in 10 years no one's gonna know what this yeah. is about like, no one gets it. I'm sure it was really funny and relevant at the time. Yeah, and it comes just after Shakespeare as well. So maybe they wanted a break from the broad and visual kind of language. It was It's a lot more literal. And, you know, to, up to, like, devising, Harold Pinter, that sort of thing. So you, you were covering everything and then you were showing that publicly as well. And you pretty much always under-rehearse it. So you, you didn't feel ready. But again, 
great lesson going in to actually perform in front of a paying audience. You're never ready and you just have to get over that. <laughs> so while you were in drama school, do you have any personal favorite roles that you played and some that stick out to you? I got to be Mad Lady Macbeth because we were sharing that role. That was fun. We were quite a male heavy year, so we did uh, a Shakespeare or, <laughs> or a promenade, Julius Caesar. So when the riots happen, that was quite interesting. <laughs> got a proper cloud clearing getting them back. And I was Calpurnia, who is um, uh, Caesar's wife kind of disappears for the rest of it again cameo and um, then i was sort of general rioter which was a lot more fun and i got to run around terrorizing everybody with a stick and appearing <laughs> in strange places and disappearing again yeah it was it was good it was very I said, very broad we did a play called stanley as well which is a biopic of a painter between the wars and mm. it, it all about you know the process really and the, the sets were beautiful they were um Cam his canvases also on a rake if you know what that is like yeah slightly raised it's like 30 degree platform okay so yeah. we were acting on top of his canvases stanley spencer that's it yeah, yeah yeah and he's a really interesting character and and it was a, a sort of biopic as well so we got to play real people that was really weird awesome. uh, but yeah they, they try i won't go on but they, yeah they try and keep that as broad as possible for us yeah i think uh, audio dramas you mentioned working on the radio I, f I feel like audio dramas are sort of making their way back around you know there was that big time in the maybe 30s to even 70s where that was mainly the thing but i personally love audio dramas I think it's amazing because I think they never really went out yeah, yeah. in the UK. But what what's happened is is I think the US has kind of forgotten that you invented it. <laughs> yeah. So you like you'll get like even like the Sandman, Audible Sandman that I did is up on IMDb as a podcast. Almost yeah. as if the word like audio doesn't quite work. Like people people go, Okay, so you're you're reading the book, right? No, we're not reading. We're acting it out. Oh, so it's a recorded play. You did the play, and they record. No, we didn't do. You remember War of the Worlds? You did that. It's yeah. really good. It worked. It scared the shit out of people. You invented it. It's great. So I'm glad if it is coming back in because um, it's such a visual medium, isn't it? Weirdly, yeah. The, the things your brain will do, yeah, yeah. with, with uh, the right input. Back in the old days, they would do the sound effects in the same room as the uh, actors. Was was that the case still when you were doing it? Oh, funnily enough, um, when they did the original Hitchhiker's Guide, because I got to, obviously got to work with, with the cast who did it back in, what, 78? They did not do it at the same time. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was separate. It would have been the BBC Radio Workshop, they called it, and, and they would have done that absolutely separately, particularly when you got all these alien space sounds. And it wasn't <laughs> in front of a live audience, whereas something like Round the Horn, which is more comedy, you want that back and forth with the audience. Yeah, you are going to have that, because it is being recorded live. Whereas when we did it as a live show on the road... <laughs> We did have a live, we did have a little live sound booth because it was hilarious. That's why we did it, but it was completely inauthentic. Um, and our director was on it with, uh, uh, that's Dirk Mags with uh, Ken Humphrey, who they've, they've mm. collaborated forever. Yeah, they've known each other since school, weirdly enough. And so they were pissing about on, on the side with some really weird looking things. And you just had to try not to be distracted by that. You know, you're in drama school. So how would you say that the transition from being on the stage to screen for the first time happened for you? Yeah, so um, traditionally, or at least when I was there a few years ago, um, quite a few years ago, you get a week of TV, maybe a week of film, more to show you that uh, technically how different they are. So with TV, it wasn't even like just like, this is your mark. This is, you know, this is your ask for, you know, they always say ask for how zoomed in the camera is, so you know, how big to go with it. But it was also like, okay, so you would do this many pages on a, a daytime TV versus, you know, an evening HBO kind of thing versus movies in which if you get what, four 
five minutes, you're doing incredibly well. Whereas, yeah. you know, soap opera is going at a difference. It was actually more that and what to expect. But I think the whole point is if you can act, you're going to be fine. And and at least in the UK at that time, is, is they basically said they're very forgiving if it's your first day on set or first time. They will be very forgiving because as long as you can actually do the acting, the technical bit will come in, which is weirdly what I found on Baldur's Gate because I'd never done mocap before, as most of us wouldn't have done mocap before because we don't really do it that often in the UK except... In the odd video game, we don't tend to have games as big as Baldur's Gate in the UK. So yeah, everyone was doing it. But if you'd done that theatrical training and you knew the rules and their physical rules, then it's all right. The rest is there. The acting is there and it takes care of itself. I got out the other end. I was doing a lot at the NF NFTS sorry, and London Film School as well, just with graduates, you know, and they're working on 35 mil. That's an interesting kind of pressure. <laughs> Because you can count your time in money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No reshoots. <laughs> and oh God, and it, again, you have to learn just to sit on that, just accept those nerves, and that's the name of the game. Of course, now most people don't shoot on film. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do very much at all. It was. It was sort of straight back into audio and theatre, really. Did you ever have to deal with stage fright? And if you did, how did you overcome it? I get stage fright on the second night. I have a really good first night, and then I think the <laughs> adrenaline doesn't come back, and it's just a bit. <sighs> And then I go, why are you doing this to yourself? Maybe you shouldn't do this. This makes you miserable. <laughs> and then by night four, it's fine. Mm. <laughs> it's, I, but there's an absolute pattern to it. Yeah, all sorts of things like I can't eat before, which has meant costume may have slipped. Thankfully, that was drama school. <laughs> uh, I had a, a what was it? they call it a practice skirt. So it's, um, it's, it's for costume dramas to help you move more authentically. It's a really heavy black skirt that goes to the ground. So I hadn't eaten, so the waistband had slipped. And so I tripped up rather a lot. But hey, it was a comedy. It was all right. It was a comedy <laughs> and it was totally fine. And no one no one asked if I was okay. <laughs> this is something I like to ask all actors. Uh, you know, to us layman non-actors, I think the term method acting is thrown around a lot. What is your method? Not to use method. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Okay, I mean, method, I think a method is what like a non-actor will go to because like if you don't have any idea of technique, you might as well like really get into the head of this person, right? And I totally understand why it's a thing, but it's very harmful to the human because you tend to do it with very extreme characters. So you're going to be living in the, the psychopath's head. Yeah. Also, like method actors have a bit of a reputation for being asses on yeah. set. Yeah. And you notice, yeah. so there's so very few female method actors because they wouldn't work again let's be honest whereas men get the whole or they win an oscar for being very public about it so it's it's one of those transformation things that i think audi audiences like to see effort i actually prefer to do something a lot more subtle so <laughs> we're, we're already at loggerheads but um i like you know it's for me it's a combination of of the writing uh, my experience and my imagination and that's mm. the magic of it and I don't take it home with me. And that's the wonderful thing about a traditional three-year training. I say traditional, but I just mean a theatrical one. Of course, people have theatre training all around the world, you know. And it's a lot safer psychologically for yourself and for everyone else, mm. the method. It's about... The training for me was was the tools, right? I've talked about doing all different kinds of genres to, to not only find your taste, but to never be freaked if you're in a situation where you're picking up a kind of text you've never worked on, right? right. You're working on a translation of a Greek tragedy and that could completely throw you off if you've never done that before. So the idea is to give you the confidence and, and the toolbox. So for me, if we go to, to Baldur's Gate, because that's the most recent time I've had to use the toolbox because it wasn't a naturalistic thing. It's very it's very big and larger than life and I'm playing a character who's a lot bigger than myself and and very different that was animal studies that was mask and that was larban and i think i think you had you had maggie robertson on i'm sure she talked a bit yep. about that i was like oh yeah. we can go deep on this this is cool yeah um so i won't i won't obviously like repeat too much but it was it was these techniques i'd done 
over 10 years ago and they came in handy and we had movement directors who were not only you know teaching in these schools but teaching in the same schools and we have that same vocabulary it doesn't even matter if your generations apart or you never met before they'll go for me it was pressing for Carlac it was pressing and so that gave me the weight and the slowness and the deliberation without me having to think about it or go through all the trauma or, <laughs> or anything. It just, it was a word that worked for me and that was the way in. So beyond what we might see your character do on the screen or whatever stage, what have you, do you do any work like uh, maybe make a journal for the character on your own time? Maybe some things that just make you help it flesh it out maybe? Journal's just an example. It didn't have to be journal specific. No, no, no. And, and I think when you start, I think as you just, as you move on the and, and as you get the life experience and as you get the experience of other people's lives, you do kind of absorb it in a kind of mind flayer way. I was going <laughs> to come up with something cleverer than that, but no, it's just stealing, <laughs> it's just stealing other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a lot more organic and you're not having to think it out. The good thing about playing a lead character is it's all on the page and you're not having to fill those gaps. With Thomasina from Hobbs Barrow, the secret to her was to find out what other people say about her because she's not self-aware at all and right. she's not aware of how arrogant she comes across so that was a real key to the character and, and and my personal thing is to lean into especially when you've got a heroic character lean into any vices or flaws of the per like you know make them human let's make them a human being so let's keep the audience on the edge of as to whether they like them or not in this moment rather yeah otherwise what's the point so um it's whatever's needed for the job sorry boring answer <laughs> how did you break into the voice acting world was it you're in i mean you did radio i mean video games specifically well i've been doing all this sci-fi and fantasy for mm. a long time between like dirk mags for audible and and bbc and then for Big Finish, and I was doing the, all the Doctor Who and the tortured stuff. And I'm going, this is very like video games, isn't it? <laughs> what we're doing here. <laughs> um, and, I, I, you know, I've been playing all my life. So, unfortunately, I believed that video games just appeared on the shelf. <laughs> like, the baby comes from the stalk, right? Yeah. So, I didn't really think about But, you know, again, maybe we need some behind-the-scenes type footage in the way that blockbuster movies used to get you know yeah. used to get all that delicious behind and see all the jobs people do not just the actors i think it's really important so i just wasn't really aware and and, and sort of for me it was I think it was at drama school when um, assassin's creed 2 came out i saw Ezio, yeah. and i was like oh yeah okay and then the second one was shepherd in in mass effect i was like okay yeah okay yeah, I think I, I'd like to do this, please. So it, it was a lot of knocking on doors. Um, the good and the bad thing about the games industry in the UK is there aren't any gatekeepers, which means no one's keeping you out, but no one's remembering you for other things. <laughs> so you kind of have to start from scratch on each job. And I was I was, I was knocking on doors everywhere, and I got, got lucky a couple of times, but it was very um, inefficient use of my time to just, you know, cold call, because every actor does it. Hey, I'm great, honest. You know, they're getting 200 of those emails a week. How do you stand out? And then within that, even just getting someone to read the CV and going, look, trust, I can do more than creature noises. I just acted with Derek Jacobi the other week. I know I'm name dropping, but I have to because yeah. you're not reading my CV. And it just still didn't matter. <laughs> it still didn't matter. I was doing like, you know, efforts and creature noises up until Hobbs Barrow just over a year ago. Wow. <laughs> I didn't get in anyway. And it took an American director to cast me in that. That's all I'm going to say. But <laughs> thankfully, once that door was opened, you know, and, and that really took off and people valued, thankfully valued the performance over the form because mm. obviously it was very low res, point and click, cozy, nostalgic look to it with a pure voice. And then 
you've got you know after a couple of years of trying to get in on on Baldur's Gate through different people recommending me and that not quite working you've then got you know uh, Twitter working and uh, one of the guys at Larian saying these are triple a performances and i went shoot your shot kid shoot your shot so i said hey hey and no one said oh no you're one of those 2d game actors no no 3d for you it was thing you're a good actor and it was like that's that's what i needed was that endorsement at that level unfortunately you know i had directors trying to get me in but they only did endorsement at management level essentially to, to get seen for an audition and, and we know the rest of the story mm-hmm. so it was you know i'd been ready for a very long time for this to get on the road and then in this last 18 months it's just completely taken off so you mentioned uh assassin's creed 2 and mass effect what other what were some of your favorite games yeah so i'm i mean i quite i quite like the games where you would play barbarian ironically <laughs> enough like i hit the thing and i get you know zelda from zelda mm-hmm. up to um I was a cyberpunk i'll always play the more physical brawler type character mm. um i like i like narrative and i like hitting things to get the treasure so the adventure get first person adventure games i think it's generally the sort of thing I play. I start thinking back, like what the first games, it would have been arcade games, but I inherited. Okay, so this shows how poor we were because <laughs> video games were rubbish and a waste of time. TV's brilliant and very good for you, but video games terrible. <laughs> and uh, my mate who I used to watch the, the horror films with, her older brother got a Game Boy. We weren't allowed to play that because he was a bastard. He was quite a bit older, like my brother was as well. And he was getting his Mega Drive. And so I inherited, or I was bequeathed a um, Amstrad, cpc 464 green screen which had tapes and when i rage quit i had to wait 20 minutes for it to reload <laughs> and still i'd rage quit <laughs> like i've got things like road rash you know like yeah. really crappy games <laughs> and then occasionally i'd program a bit it was basic language i'd like just got off on that so <laughs> i was very close to the old computer but obviously not much in the way of acting when i was was playing it it was um much later on when i was yeah when i picked up I guess the, the the console, you know, from PS One onwards, where where that's coming more into play. But I love Gabriel Knight games. You know, I thought they were fun and sassy and uh, <laughs> not what you do. People have an attitude to things. You know, they're not just right. uh, blank heroes. They have a past. Uh, Broken Sword as well was 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 a big one. But I never thought of myself as doing it because mm-hmm. videos just appeared in out of the blue. <laughs> so was uh was Baldur's Gate three your first? experience with any kind of tabletop sort of deal i played tabletop actually shortly before covid mm. uh, 20 i'll say 2018 2019 there was a meetup group in london that a friend introduced me to like a one-shot group it's quite smart you um you're a mercenary you go to the tavern you get picked for an adventure for the next three hours <laughs> and they were really fun there's a lot of first-time dms as well and, and a lot of first-time players and that worked really well uh, but i couldn't be asked learning the rules of a sorcerer or something so i just went barbarian that was my first <laughs> <laughs> so I can i just point and, and hit things and i'm really stupid so i don't know what's going great yeah we'll do that i then played a warlock later on who was very regretful about their life choices um so yeah a, li- a little bit a little bit not not that much i'd say but at least i understood a lot of the vocabulary in the room if not the pronunciation or spelling because that always goes over my head <laughs> <laughs> so take us through the initial audition for uh, larry and was it a typical audition do you remember anything standing out about it so y- you're gonna have to pick one because there was one in 2020 there were oh. two in 2020 and then there was one last year were they all <laughs> for they all for carlac uh, two for Karlak and one, I think they just made us do general creature stuff because a few of us have talked about it on the panel and we've gone, oh, you as well. It wasn't just 
So there was a, a Creature audition in 2020, which led to a Carlac audition, but it was a very different Carlac. There was a 10 years in hell thing, but she was a fighter. Um, she might have been a tiefling. She wasn't the big girl. She didn't have the same personality. I think really probably a bit more similar to Lazelle and maybe it was what became Lazelle. I don't know, but it was it was really different. And um, that was Kirsty Gilmore set that up. Uh, she's been advocating for me behind the scenes for years. So I'll tell you about the Creature Audition. So that was, <laughs> as you know, I just said that I've been playing D&D, right? So right. they give, let's say, 12 races, but they're called things like Planewalker and Devilkin and um, not, uh, not gnome, but like small person. <laughs> I get horses sailing close to the wind, lads. If wizards find out, you, you, you're in trouble because that, that's a mind flayer. That's a tiefling. <laughs> so they said, I think it was 12 and they said pick three. I think I did nine. I think Neil did the same. Yeah, but say Neil said the exact same thing. <laughs> I could do them all, darling. Yeah, yeah. At some point, they're going to get very sick of, of this. But uh, it, was, it was a fun script. It was silly. It wasn't fable. So I've auditioned for Fable before, before the last one fell through. And it was so clearly Fable. Mm. It's Monty Python, right? It's so obviously Fable, but it wasn't. It was a bit funny, but it wasn't cartoonish. Right. So I was trying to work out what it was. And um, yeah, that was the end of that. Didn't hear back from them. So, blah, 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 Hobbs Barrow, hello. Can I audition for a significantly large role in your game? See, I worded it very carefully. At that point, I was aware of how big this game was. So I think it was um, uh, Josh, we I have to say this right, Josh Whedon, not Josh Sweden. Gotcha. With an SH at Pit Stop um, had either remembered me from the Colac from two years ago, three years ago uh, or, or not. But um, that I think he made the decision that I was going to go for Colac. I think that's important because I tell the story really quickly and, and it misses out the... Um, 20 years of setup that it was it's very riveting i know but anyway i went in um it was you know you know um uh Mulholland drive yeah this is the girl that's what it felt like right <laughs> so i auditioned at home i got the call back in two hours and i went right <laughs> this doesn't happen i get ghosted <laughs> this doesn't happen and then I, I got asked to come into the studio in in croydon and i did um well, I just did. I just did an audition in front of the screen. I wasn't wearing the mocap costume. I wasn't asked to physicalize her, but I guess they wanted to see what it was like in front of the cameras. And not quite sure what that was about. But they brought it. I guess it's the arsehole test, right? And yeah. it, so that's good. And then I think within I think within the day, I heard that I'd been offered the role. How different was that first Carlac voice from what became Carlac? I mean, I just gave it a very neutral. Hi, I'm in fantasy. And uh, I'm going to talk like this. I guess she's more like RP, more more neutral. And then as I got to know like a bit about the background, because I didn't have the same sort of background writing that, that Sarah Bayliss, the, the writer, provided the first time around, she was quite clearly working class. That was like quite obvious from, from the background and who she was. So we had to change that up a bit. It seems that everyone, well, most people in the game, in Faerun, is it's Southern England. So that narrows it down. Um, I'm a Londoner, so I went that way. But you don't want to be a goblin, because then like you sound like a goblin, don't you? So you, I didn't want to be too London. So then I sort of made my own rules about what Carlac's accent would be like, <laughs> uh, which was to uh, loosen my vowels and tighten up the consonants. That's the rule for Carlac's accent. So it doesn't quite sound exactly London, but it sounds working class. It's really small, and but it's my little rule because I don't want to sound like her when I open my mouth as a normal person. <laughs> I just, just want that, that layer of removal. Like when we were talking about method, I just want that, that yeah. just that step out of the character, which is, which is good. But yeah, a lot of the work really was in the body. body the voice is a result of that so you get this the text for me and then it's the body whether that's imagining something outside in or inside out 
it'll be the body and then the voice is a result. Everyone that I've spoken with in regards to motion capture that have a theatrical background say it's pretty much a good medium between stage and screen. It's more akin to theater. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, your face doesn't isn't an aspect. So yeah. uh, a movement director that I vibed really well with swears blind it's like the film, but I, I don't think it is because... This can be off the charts, which it is. <laughs> so doing audio, I, I'm not in control of the face anymore. But um, the idea that now you're having to split the difference with the body because the body's telling the story as well. And it has to be a little bit bigger as well because you haven't got the face to, you know, it's, it's what do they say? Most people are looking at body language and tone rather than what you're actually saying. And, and we're in a medium of storytelling where what you're saying is absolutely imperative <laughs> to what so it's kind of the opposite of, of of what you would get on stage where the the body kind of telling that story but you've got that physicality and that was the safe place to come back to and then to this day if i have to uh, when i've had to go back in and do a pickup or whatever i have to or i do an impression right i'll go to the cons and that i do the impression i, I have to stand in the way i stood mm. Voice to come out because i did hundreds of hours of it and and that's where it lives in my body it's a physicalization it's not a voice that I just put on. So that's weird. But yeah, as I said, like things like lab and mask, animal studies, you know, if, if we had gone down the animal studies road, I, maybe she would have started out as, as a primate of some sort just to get that chest, mm. you know, I don't do, I'm all slumped. So it's just, it's just the rules. And then once you know the rules, you just inhabit. It's like putting the shoes on. Gotcha. So yeah. Okay. And, and I know there's the people have, I mean, the directors more than me, but I've also seen it. I've seen a pure audiobook narrator go in and it's, it's sad. It's <laughs> they used to acting from here up. Yeah. And yeah. you've just said, Yeah, so go with the body, this thing that you've never worked with in a storytelling sense before, go and they'll just sort of stand there. So mm -hmm. uh, I think just by virtue of having short of two hundred and fifty actors, I think they, they got their choice of the fact that most British actors will have trained in theatre on purely as voice. Because that's a skill, but there's there's not much dubbing especially now with AI, dubbing cartoon work, even commercial stuff. There isn't so much as there is in the States and in other countries where English is maybe one of many languages you have to know. So, you know, as a monoculture in that aspect, there just there isn't that sort of work and, and um, amazing talent that can do that and make a living because there, mm. there isn't that much to go around. In the gaming sector specifically, would you say that I know there's some behind the scenes footage of like J.K. Simmons in the booth, but would you say that for games, booth work is damn near dead M pretty much moving towards the motion capture totally i mean i think it's budget right mm. so i mean the fact that uh, you would have seen uh, maggie's behind the scenes she did the full motion capture for and when you've got big names you just want to get them in the studio right yeah, yeah. You have time to put the, the suit on and maybe they don't want it and i mean i don't know what the deal is but i think when i see these celebrity castings across the board they tend not to to do the mocap because it's just it's such an expensive way to do it thankfully we had some really talented pure mocap artists to to match that and think it's worked really nicely i was i was going to say in, in in the uk no like <laughs> this is an anomaly this is an anomaly okay it, it's people normally people working at home now uh, sometimes directing themselves as well. Done that a little bit, not for games, but for some audio drama, which was a very weird experience because I'm not used to it. I like the collaborative side as well. I want someone from the outside telling me, you know, giving me advice and, and, and bringing the best out of me. I don't think I'm always the best person for that, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, no, so in the UK, no. In the UK, no. But then when it comes down to awards and stuff, it's always these big AAA performances that, that get the nod. So it maybe it looks like Maybe it looks like the majority are, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to see, but I think the majority of games are going to be indie, right? If we talk money. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone has a huge, yeah, rock star yeah. budget, you know? No, 
so I think just by just pure statistics, I think it's most likely you're going to be doing voice only. But it's also very broad, right? You've got FMV, you've got mocap, you've got this pure voice thing. You've you're not asked to ever do that in one medium in any other. Right. Oh, well, for this audio drama, we're going to film you now. You know that that well, that's a film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you might cast it differently. So I think this is why the problem the word voice actors to describe actors who work in games because well, first of all, it doesn't tally. Right. If you're a movie actor, then you're a game actor. Right. If you're if you're a voice actor, then a movie actor is a face actor. Right. Yeah. No one says that. So so let's maybe we're going to talk about the medium. We'll talk about the medium. But games is so broad. Uh, and what's nice is it's been for us, people like me, it's, it's been so overlooked. It's not been it's not overrun by big names. It's coming, but it's not been overrun by big names yet. And so people like me get get a chance. And I think a really nice thing about, about Baldur's Gate is, is all these unknown actors that are in it and this talent. And it just shows you that an actor's an actor. Yeah. You know, the rest is marketing and, and, and all the rest. But uh, and I, I, there's a lot of good actors out there. Yeah, with all the stuff that you guys do, saying calling you a voice actor almost seems derogatory. Well, I, I'm careful about it because I know people, what I'd call a pure voice actor, I've said it's such a skill. I don't yeah. have it. I get asked to do cartoon voices. I struggle with monsters because I'm not sure how to use this. I haven't got the passion for it. I'll be honest. Um, so I don't put in the work. Um, I can't do ages. I don't really know how to do that. I get asked to do, I just get asked to act the shit out of stuff. Normally while running around in space, and I'll give you some different accents in a bit, but it's not going to be transformative it's in the way that an amazing voice artist is going to do. So I don't want to trample on their toes yeah, either. Yeah. I don't want to give them an expectation that I can't fulfill. And I think, yeah, it betrays what I uh, draw on. And, and with, BG3 particularly is like three of us on a hill we're dying together happily um, you know it raises the work to say to say voice actor it raises the work of, of mocap engineers of the movement directors of all the people that animated us you know it's a lot of people that are then cut out of the picture and just as an actor it seems very rare that you'd get to spend that much time with a singular character and uh, Neil talk, talked a bit about that because he was a voice director as well that if he would work let's say he worked with you he would look for your input as to do you think Carlac would do this because you know you've been her for ex however long. I just think that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, he he was great because he also was a movement director as well. Mm. So, and 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 he had played Astarian. So we had played. He had played parallel versions of my missions. So I could go where are because they were my eyes and ears. Right, his directors were the universe. Um, I couldn't look at anything to, to, to have a picture of what it might be. They would have to describe it. And that's where the D&D &D knowledge comes in. If you know what a certain realm looks like, brilliant. But if it's a new one for the game, good luck. And if someone's actually not only read it, but played it through, they'll go, oh, yeah, I remember. This is what happens here. This is the atmosphere. This is what I remember happening. That was super useful to have that knowledge. But some of the directors, just pure directors as well, had that knowledge. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm the only one that spent all that time with Carlac. So uh, it became... I had the responsibility to, to not only look after her, but I felt I knew her through line well, you know, and the way we recorded it, obviously we record out of sequence, but we did like, we did the beginning a lot. We, we had to really refine what that looks like, that entrance looks like. And then we did like a big middle scene, let's say, and then we did a big end scene and they were all close to the beginning. And then, so you know where these, end, you know where these points are and then the rest is just making sure everything fits in and is, is consistent. Yeah, you would get a director. I had a handful of directors that directed me once. <laughs> And I just had to go, trust me. <laughs> Normally what I'd say though is like, she, she, not me, she's loud. You might want to ride the gain. 
<laughs> and then they'd either listen to that advice or not, and that's up to them. They were always warned. And and then the rest of it is like, yeah, I think I think she'd be like this. And then I felt sorry for them because I was kind of directing myself, but I didn't hey. have to do that many pickups. So. <laughs> I was all right in the end, or well, they didn't care. It worked <laughs> out. <laughs> so, Samantha, what would you say is uh, the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? Mm. They're now saying in the drama schools in the UK, at least, that it's going to take about 10 years for you to hit the ground. Right. And they, no one said that to me. So um, an actor, and I can't remember who he was because he was a friend of a friend, told me it's a marathon, not a sprint, which is such an overused phrase. But it's true in my case. So, <laughs> yeah, if someone had told me in the training, like it's it's going to take a while. It's just you have to build these contacts up. It's not it's got nothing to do with talent, believe it or not. <laughs> it, it, it's the contacts. It's the endorsement. It's the opportunities. It's um, the luck, you know, the the being in the right place at the right time, which is very privileged if, if um, you're someone who has to work for a living outside of it it's very hard to make those opportunities so yeah it takes a while it takes quite a while for some of us for most of us even the, the successful actors who are around in my time i think eight to ten years mm. before they hit it big so it just it takes a while again like i was saying at the top it doesn't help in the way we editorialize our, our origin stories and all the, the not the hard work not just the hard work but the time and, and again, all the people that come together to to try and uh, promote you behind the scenes, who believe in you, that it, it takes so many factors to just get you that opportunity. So yeah, marathon, not sprint. Can't remember. <laughs> someone, someone wise. So have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Or if you don't like those words, experience you can't explain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so before I trained, I was a transmission controller. I don't know if you know what that means or if that translates to. Uh, so I used to keep the TV on air. Do you remember okay. when people used to yeah, play off yeah. tapes and yeah. um, you'd see the sorry we're off it. That'd be me flapping in the background. <laughs> so we did. I did a Cartoon Network, Toonami, um, one of the Hanna Barbera channels, that sort of thing. And on Halloween, because uh, it was owned by Turner Classic Movies, we had full access to the vault of these massive Betamax tapes, right? And um, one of our senior, thankfully, senior um, uh, colleagues wanted to watch The Devils, if you know that. it's uh, We're talking, it's Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fucking mental. <laughs> it's absolutely mental. Uh, Derek Jarman did did the um, the sets and it was his first feature film. And, and it was set in, it was like a sort of, uh, one of these weird crucible type situations where it could be that the supernatural could be having or not but basically everything looks like a public urinal it's really messed up it's really messed up i'm trying to think oh what's his bloody name it's the guy who directed women in love because he's known for doing the whole nudity thing particularly with the men so fair play you know because that's gone out the window now it used to be a lot more um open opportunities ken russell ken okay. russell you've got to know who ken russell yeah, is yeah you got to see the devils yeah it gets banned all the time anyway we watch this whole thing we all have two or three channels each and then all these tellies and that and we've watched it and we're absolutely wrapped because as i said it's terrifying and mental like it goes too further than like the wicker man does the first time you watch it, it really shakes you to your core and we looked up and every screen was black we had all gone off air <laughs> every cartoon channel on the cartoon network <laughs> had gone off air while we were watching the devils on halloween wow is that the one that's based off the devils of ludon the uh the story yeah i gotcha okay got yeah gotcha got it yeah mm. yeah so that will always stay. <laughs> and what was nice is we I Spartacus it because back then it was instant dismissal if you went on air off air. So the fact we all went off air, we couldn't tell you what happened. We just went, yep, yeah, that happened to me too, and what? me, and me, and we did everything we could. 
That was very creepy. That's about as, as, as supernatural, I think, as I've been unfortunate to uh, experience. That definitely counts. So uh, what would you say is the most challenging project you worked on in your career is the one that you lost sleep over? Oh, think, sorry. Um, as I said, it's sort of the drama school thing kind of prepares you well. I mean, I could say uh, Baldur's Gate was quite a challenge in that I had a day job the whole time. Uh, I got to the point as an actor, I was really sick of being poor. And um, around 2017, started to look at uh, software engineering roles and started to train up. And I, I, I took my time and there was a lot of free stuff for people like myself in London uh, who are underrepresented, basically. And I got to have a go at everything. But in the end, I went into cloud infrastructure engineering because why not? But that feels similar to the transmission control in a way. It's like keeping these big servers up and uh, making sure they don't fall over like when you watch The Devils on, on Halloween. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'd got a job at a consultancy in, in 2021 thinking, uh, oh, of course, during pandemic as well, when everything but recorded audio media had, had gone, if you were in theatre, you were pretty screwed. So I had been doing bits and bobs on the side, but obviously not enough to make it anywhere near a living. So I was doing this full-time job and it was a full-time salaried job. So I wasn't going to get any time off to do anything. And when I got Baldur's Gate, I was told it was um, 10 sessions. So I didn't give up my job. I didn't give up my job, mate. 10 sessions <laughs> and then they went can can we have 20 more and i went yeah you still good for evenings and weekends yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> right i mean we're in the mid 60s now justin just for spoilers um um it got like it got like hardcore in june and and thankfully well because i had the high paying it job i was able to to save every penny from borders and um i quit I quit the job. Yes, that's the that's the yay. dream. <laughs> it's the dream. I hadn't like, to that point. I hadn't actually had a normal job. I'd done like all the out of work actor jobs. I'd worked in bars forever. I worked um, a promo. I've worked uh, temping, that sort of thing. Um, all minimum wage now, zero hour jobs. I've stayed exactly the same rates. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and aren't flexible. The whole point was that the idea is that they would they wouldn't kick you out if you go and audition for things, but they do. So it's become increasingly more exclusive, as even more so than when I started out. So it, it's very um, just the business as a whole isn't isn't forgiving of any sort of responsibilities or money issues you might have. But no, as I said, luckily on this and since um, it's launched and we're doing things like conventions and that, it's, it's really nicely ticking over um but the last what the last two and a half years is the first time in my life i've lived in any kind of financial safety in my life so i think you'll be fine going forward <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm rooting for you <laughs> thank you thank you um yeah so yeah that was a challenge i had to um uh, yeah it was it, but it was it was liberating because i had this job that i i just felt hadn't i i had no worth it wasn't contributing anything it was just making more money for the consultancy and then at night i'm playing this badass character which i'm not telling anyone about at work because you can imagine how that derail any kind of conversation <laughs> you might have <laughs> just a bit they're all gamers of course so that, i wonder if they've worked it out yet maybe not <laughs> <laughs> so uh i was doing that every and it was evenings and weekends and because i went in at uh, the same time as uh, theo solomon we were going in the last year i guess of production uh, which, by the way, is more normal. I know people are like, oh, others were on it for four years. Yeah, that's really unusual because you're basically working with the developers there. But we were more like the traditional actor where it's kind of set and then you go in and do it. And there's a bit of back and forth, but not as much as, as you would get if you're on it for four years. Yeah, it, it was it was tough. It was tough on the body. And, and I just had to make sure I advocated for myself because what, what was weird was being put on a pedestal. 
as a leading actor in something on a big thing, people are now going to put you on a pedestal and make sure you're right, but not look after anyone else maybe. And that's a practice across the entire entertainment industry. So I made sure that if I got a break, everyone got a break. Mm -hmm. Crazy, right? But, you know, maybe everyone should stop looking at the monitors. Yeah. Maybe everyone should get to go to use the bathroom. Revolutionary. I know. I know. <laughs> but, but I just thought now I have that privilege. If, I'm, if you're going to give me the privilege, we're going to make sure everyone's happy, right? Or at least as happy as we can be. Um, and it was good as well because I got to eat meals with the, the crew. And I don't think anyone else got to do that just because of the time of day I was coming in the evening. So that was really a nice little bonding type experience. But it was about, yeah, just making sure that I was... Um, looking after myself because you know the spells god you know and if, i think everyone knows you can respec us now you can play us all as yeah so we did spells and i was just yelling hours and hours of yelling and um that's always something that comes up with with any actor doing games it's like because as you may or may not know devs wear so many different hats so you can't expect them to have that that a director experience and even the experience of saying we'll, sh we'll save the shouting till the end <laughs> some people start and then wonder why the voice is going or like and actors don't advocate for themselves and that's that's not just the people pleasing side but also like the adrenaline is up so you don't feel it right. even working with Kirsty, who knows me very very well i remember her saying you're right mate do you want a break i was like no no i'm good to go on she says you're sounding a bit tired and i didn't feel it we went on a break and I could feel I could actually start to feel it. And if she hadn't stepped in, I would have pushed through and I would have maybe maybe just like not not damaged because theatre trains all in diaphragm, but um thankfully not lose not, not lost the voice unless it's been a virus or something, but not due to working. But again, that's me advocating, that's me going, Okay, well I'll do two hours of this, but then we have to stop for today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's it's building those breaks really those breaks in, making sure that um yeah, people feel safe and comfortable and like I used um uh an intimacy coordinator for the first time in my oh. life that was offered to the pure mocap people because they did sex scenes right and they're working right. together whereas our setup is is we're working solo but they're very intimate scenes and um it being games you don't always get the full script in advance and i just wanted to make sure that i wasn't only safe but that it sounded intimate and it didn't sound like an actor being nervous Right. So, they were a bit, yeah, so I got to like experiment new new ideas, but also to advocate for myself. And um, as soon as I could leave the job, I left the job. <laughs> that had to do with money being in the bank as well. Um, and I loved it. And I, I, I loved it. I loved the fact that I would push through. That was a very Carlac thing to do, to go, come on, we've got these many months to, to kill it. And we're going to do the best job we can. And we're going to enjoy ourselves, even though we're exhausted. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's the most method I got was to use the exhaustion, I suppose. But that's a theatre technique. They do it with young actors who will like that, exhaust them and then do the play. And then they'll be very relaxed and unpretentious. That's the idea. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I tried to, to push that into the work. It, it suited her to be all big and tired. Yeah. Small and tired. <laughs> What is your holy shit moment with Baldur's Gate 3? Uh, when did you realize just how this is one of the biggest game releases in gaming history? <laughs> so you just saying that has tickled me. So <laughs> I haven't quite landed. Every, every week you think you've hit the, the peak of it, don't mm -hmm. you? So um, I'll give you some flashpoints. Um, the first one was when they did the feature out of the city. And I went, fuck me, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be in this. <laughs> uh last panel from hell when they i could see the response to the date scene and then of course bless halcid's bear gate that kicking off in which i think we lost a lot of a potentially toxic fan base at the same time mm. which was really good someone dressed their cat up as carlac <laughs> you've made oh, it oh okay no this is good 
this is big so like you know every time you think okay this is a weird thing that that indicates that that yeah no every, every week there's something else there's something people writing songs right like yeah. professional artists have written songs very kindly allow, allow me to use them on my on my streams and then comic-con you know just yeah brilliant good people like storytelling yeah they've been missing it they've been missing it for a long time we've been marvelized for over a decade so yeah. um yeah so just to put a bow on everything here uh what's on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble you mean doing this makes it look like i'm going oh there's so much well, i'm going <laughs> what is that <laughs> what is that have we been approached with a game no we haven't um <laughs> Um, I am, I've just gone affiliate with my Twitch stream and I ain't no streamer. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't work for that. I walked in <laughs> and I, yeah. So I'm going to do something a little bit different with, with that pedestal. Let's put it that way. That's, oh, that's in the next couple of weeks. That's, so that's my own NDA I'm alluding to. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think what else. No, we would, we would love to do more conventions. We are, um, <clears throat> we are currently in, in the process of getting representation um and and so if anyone watching would like us to come to their con it's not on us it's on you so please get in touch and, and, <laughs> and, and we'd love to be there if we can get there yeah please give me money begging the world for jobs uh no yeah no it's it's um it's fine it's fine because i'm okay for money right now that's the truth of it. Great Let's feeling, go yeah. Burst that bubble. We're okay for money, and and so we can relax to some some degree. That's awesome, Samantha. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for giving me some of your time. Big fan. And you, what fun! All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Samantha. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Ha 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 